You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. Hi, I'm Pastor Delana, and welcome to Calvary. Whether you're here in person or online, we're just so grateful that you're here. And if you have not met me yet, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. My husband and I, we moved to this area about five and a half years ago, and we've been at Calvary ever since. And I have kind of a unique role here at Calvary, but I absolutely love being a pastor here. So I am the operations pastor, which basically means I am an introvert who likes spreadsheets and numbers and systems. And some of you out there, you are my type of people. You like those same things, and other of you, you're just like, I don't know how to use Excel, and that is okay. But I like it, and it fits me well. But I also am the Calvary Cares pastor here, and I have this passion that our church is meant to reach our community, to make a difference here, to not just be something that we come here on a Sunday morning and this is it. It has to be more than this. So I always want to make a difference in the community and make a difference around the world. So I get this lovely balance between spreadsheets and let's do this crazy thing in our community. And I absolutely love being here doing this. So one of the things we're having soon, we have Surf Saturdays every month. Guess what? There's one happening in August. Guess what? There'll be one happening in September. That's why they're monthly. So the one coming up in August is going to be with Irwin Parks, and we would love to see as many of you there as possible, just to make a difference right here in our community. And you know what else? These are great stepping stones for you to serve in our community, to be prepared to serve globally. And in the next couple weeks, we're going to be working on announcing our missions trips to different places. So I'm not going to spoil the surprise, but I just want you to know that these Serve Saturdays are great first steps for you to pray and show up and see what God will do and see if he says, hey, this opportunity is coming up to serve further away. This is for you. So I just wanted to throw that out there because these, these are my passions. And we really, really want to see God impact our community, God impact this world. But you know, this month, we've been talking about David and Goliath and the giants that we face in our lives. And you know how God defeats these giants that we find in our lives. So today, we're going to close out the series by really digging deeper into the story. And I know for some of us, we've heard the story of David and Goliath hundreds of times. If you grew up in church, you know that this was a Sunday school classic. And it still remains a kids' church favorite today. For others in this room or maybe online, maybe you've just heard a basic outline of the story since you're newer to Christianity, or maybe you're checking us out for the first time and have no idea what the story is at all. And that's fine, because we're going to go through the story piece by piece. So if you've never heard the story for you before, I'm going to give you the major spoiler. There's no surprises here, right? Young David defeats the giant Goliath in a single shot 
in a major battle, and this is a miracle. That is the story, right? And the story is amazing just at that. But stories that start with that always leave me wondering, how did they get there? What led up to this point of victory? What happened behind the scenes here to get to this remarkable story that we've been telling for thousands of years? So let's start out with the basics of the timeline. Let's go way, 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 way back. The Israelites had been miraculously delivered out of slavery in Egypt. They wandered through the desert for 40 years. God led them into the promised land where they settled down as a people. And over the years, they had a series of leaders, which were a mixture of elders and judges that helped resolve conflicts and protect the land and the people. And some of these leaders were good like Samuel, and some of the others did not follow the ways of God. But God himself during this time fulfilled the role of king of Israel. So no human king, God was king of Israel. But the people had this pattern over and over and over again of God did something miraculous. The people followed closely after God, and then slowly they'd fade away to doing their own thing and disobey God. Rinse, wash, repeat, over and over and over again. And this is simply a very brief synopsis of probably about 400 to 500 years of history. But we see in 1 Samuel 8:5 that the elders approached Samuel and they said to him, Look, you are old and your sons don't follow your ways. So now appoint over us a king to lead us, just like all the other nations have. And Samuel reluctantly did as they requested after consulting with God about the decision. And you know, I really wouldn't have wanted to be part of that conversation with God. Like, could you imagine? Okay, let's imagine this. Sometimes I like to picture God talking with people in the Bible, like going similarly to how my conversations with God go. So let's picture this. Okay, we have Samuel, and he's like, hey, God. And God's like, yes. And Samuel is like, oh, hey, you know your people would like a human king now instead of you being king? And God's like, oh, really now? Well, that's not too surprising, as they have frequently rejected me since the time I brought them out of Egypt. But go ahead and give them what they want. So Samuel's like, all right, I'll always do as you say. And God's like, oh, by the way, just one more thing. Make sure you explain to them the consequences of having a human king instead of me. So Samuel's like, okay, all right. I'll tell them the consequences and let them make their decision, but I still hope they don't do this. Right? Not a conversation I would want to have with God, but not crazy. Like, this is things that we deal with, so. But long story short, in 1 Samuel 8, 19, the people refused to heed Samuel's warning. And so they said, no, there will be a king over us. We will be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us and lead us and fight our battles. Now remember, this is what the people wanted. A human king to judge them, lead them, and fight their battles instead of God. So Samuel anointed Saul to become 
the first human king of Israel. And Saul wasn't really a bad choice. He was actually a humble, God-following man. And God did a remarkable work in Saul's life as he became the first human king. And for a while, Saul listened to God and was a representative of God to the people. And his private walk with God showed in his public life. But as time went on, eventually Saul started doing his own thing and started acting like the other kings of the other nations. And he started directly disobeying direct commands from God because he thought he knew how to rule better. So his private walk with God faded away and this started showing in his public kingship. So throughout Saul's kingship, we see him occasionally listening to God and do, but mostly he kind of did what he thought was personally right versus listening to God. And this is a circumstance where David enters the picture, okay? Samuel starts looking for the next human king of Israel since Saul is no longer devoted to God. God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse And Jesse presents seven of his sons to Samuel. And Samuel does not find the next king among them, even though Samuel found some of them to be physically compelling, especially the oldest brother, Eliab. So in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Don't be impressed by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. God does not view things the way people do. People look on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So Samuel, after not finding the one he's looking for in the seven sons there, asks about any other sons from Jesse. And Jesse sends for his youngest, the eighth son, David, who was out caring for the sheep, to come in. Now, could you imagine if someone very important were to go to one of your parents and say, hey, let's have dinner together and bring your whole family. And you are the one just left out to continue your normal responsibilities and miss out on the whole meeting with that important person and any opportunity that may come out of it. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think Jesse really meant harm by this. There was still work that had to be done regardless of visitors. Sheep need protection around the clock. They don't protect themselves, they're sheep. You know what I mean? And Jesse had several very capable, well-trained, grown sons present. Jesse probably also didn't know the exact opportunity that would come out of this encounter or why it would be a big deal that he left a kid out. But regardless, we see in chapter 16, verse 12, that Jesse had him brought in, and now he was ruddy with attractive eyes and a handsome appearance. The Lord said, go and anoint him. This is the one. And Samuel followed God's instructions to designate David as the next human king of Israel. However, here's the glitch. King Saul is still the human king of Israel. And he's not going anywhere, right? David is the son of Jesse, which means he's obviously not the son of Saul, who would make sense, the most sense for the next king, right? So, and the other way to become king in the surrounding nations would be to conquer 
the current king. And David is a teenager. And King Song is a grown man and warrior. So what is David to do with this venture? Nothing. Right? David is left to continue his life as normal with the strange knowledge known to him and his family that Samuel anointed him to be the next human king of Israel. So here's David, the shepherd boy and the next king of Israel. He's to continue what he was doing before, but with a twist. Because it always has to get more complicated, right? So we actually find out more about David and what he was doing in his time tending sheep because of King Saul. King Saul, at this point in his life, was struggling immensely and requested a musician to relax him in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 17, 18, and 21. So Saul said to his servants, find me a man who plays well and bring him to me. One of his attendants replied, I have seen a son of Jesse in Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave warrior and is articulate and handsome for the Lord is with him. David came to Saul and stood before him. Saul liked him a great deal and he became his armor bearer. So now we get to see some of the general background on David. We know he's a well-trained musician, which means he probably spent hours upon hours practicing the lyre out with the sheep. Nothing else to do, right? He also spent a lot of time um, improving his fighting skills because they listed him as a trained warrior, so that would have been something he had to learn to protect the sheep, right? And neither of these skills are ones that are learned quickly, but are learned by great repetition and practice and patience. So we learn that David, in his private life, alone with the sheep, had been consistently working on his musical skills and his fighting skills. This private practice is now showing in public because he just became an on-call servant to Saul, the king of Israel. How ironic, right? You're the next king of Israel. Now you're an on-call servant to the first king who doesn't know you're the next king. Great, great. It's funny about that. Like, so but let's fast forward a little bit here. David's being on call, comes with music as he's called. But when we fast forward to the battle here, the Philistines had had many conflicts with Israel over the years. And this is just the most recent one. The Philistines set up camp on one hill, and the Israelites set up camp on the other hill, and they set the battle lines down the middle in the valley of Elah. You know, most battles would be what you would typically think, right? The whole army on this side would fight against the whole army on this side. And whoever wins, I guess, is the people that are alive at the end of it, right? Typically how a battle would go. But the Philistines decided to offer a deal through Goliath. And here's the basics of this deal. Instead of everyone fighting and a lot of people dying, Let's do a one-on-one fight to determine the overall winner. Theoretically, only one person dies. Theoretically, okay? The army of the losing person then has to become the servants of the winner. Now, this doesn't sound too bad if you're trying to avoid bloodshed, but it also does put the future of all the people of each country 
on the battle skills of one person. And since the Philistines had already decided on this battle tactic, they had someone lined up for this, Goliath. And he was enormous in comparison to everyone else, so much that he was called a giant. He stood head heights above everyone else. He was well-trained, he was intimidating, he was a warrior covered head to toe in armor and carrying a huge bronze javelin and other weapons. He also had his own shield bearer walking before him so no one could get close to him in battle. Of course, to get close enough to Goliath in battle, you would have to avoid being hit by Goliath's javelin when he threw it at you once you were in range. So you gotta avoid that first before you even can get close to him. And then he has the armor bearer. So like, honestly, there's no good way to get close to this guy, okay? And regardless of the skills of other fighters, Goliath was highly intimidating and he knew it. He mocked the entire Israeli army and the God who they served. And he struck fear in the heart of the entire army. Now, if you take a moment to just step back, okay? They had two options, right? Two options. I don't know whether they thought of these options. I sure hope they did, but basically there's two options. They could send a single fighter to face Goliath, or they could reject the offer of the one-on-one fight and do the normal whole army versus whole army thing. Either route, though, they would have to contend with Goliath. And who knows, maybe Goliath had brothers in the army on the other side too. But let's go back to the passage where the Israelites had decided that they wanted a human king. What exactly was it they wanted a king for? They said, our king will judge us and lead us and fight our battles. So whose responsibility was it to make the decision of how to continue on in battle, or whose responsibility was it to fight Goliath one-on-one? Any ideas? Yep, King Saul. That's his job. That's That's what they got a king for. But instead of making a decision, even King Saul was frozen in fear. He had walked away from following God in his private life, and he could not find what God wanted him to do in this situation. So what happens? Again, basically nothing. Nothing happens. Goliath comes out every morning with this challenge to Saul, to the army, to the God of Israel. And it is humiliating. This giant mocking them, telling them they can't do it, that their God is not big enough to defeat him. And time just passes. Forty days of taunting. And you know, Saul's best idea was to offer wealth and a marriage into his family as a reward for one of his men to take up Goliath on the challenge in his stead. But none do. The entire army just camps out waiting and not making any decisions during this period of taunting. So let's go back to David. He's young. He's left at home to tend after his father's sheep. You know, sometimes he had been called to come serve Saul with his music, 
But King Saul has been at this encampment with his drawn-out battle with the Philistines for 40 days. David's three oldest brothers, including Eliab, the handsome guy, are part of Saul's army and are at the encampment. So on the 40th day, his father Jesse sends David with some supplies for his three oldest brothers. David leaves the sheep with someone he trusts and takes the supplies to the battle lines. When he arrives, he watches Goliath shout his daily intimidating lines. You know, every day he was doing this, but David, this is the first time he's seen it. And he watched the lines be shouted, and then he watches the whole army of Israel retreat away from the battle. And this is where David decides to volunteer for the job. His oldest brother thought he was crazy, right? And tries to talk him out of it. But they were overheard talking, and the news spread back to King Saul that someone had finally volunteered to take on Goliath. We overhear this conversation in 1 Samuel 17, 32-37. David said to Saul, Don't let anyone be discouraged. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied to David, You aren't able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You are just a boy. He has been a warrior from his youth. David replied to Saul, Your servant has been a shepherd for his father's flock. Whenever a lion or a bear would come and carry off a sheep from the flock, I would go out after it, strike it down, and rescue the sheep from its mouth. If it rose up against me, I would grab it by its jaw, strike it, and kill it. Your servant has struck down both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David went on to say, The Lord who delivered me from the lion and the bear will also deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, Go, the Lord be with you. Now, after reading this conversation, maybe you're having some of the same thoughts that I'm having. Seriously? Grown man, King Saul, is agreeing to put the future of all of them, you know, that possibility of them all entering servanthood to the Philistines in the hands of a teenager instead of doing his own job. Now, Saul hadn't completely lost his wits as he does at least try to give David some of his armor to protect him. But this armor doesn't fit David because actually King Saul was quite a formidable man himself. It is said that he stood about a head taller than most of his men, and he was actually a well-trained fighter. Goliath, of course, is bigger and better than Saul, but Saul is no small human, okay? At least in this circumstance, David realizes that Saul's armor and his sword isn't going to work for him and declines them because David is not the size of Saul, and he is definitely not the size of Goliath. But David opts for what has worked for him in the past against the lion and the bear. It was his shepherd's staff and some smooth rocks from the stream for his sling. He continues what he has practiced in private, and it is now this public forum against this formidable giant. 
And even after the rejection of King Saul's preferred method of sword and armor, no one stops David from approaching Goliath. All right? Crazy. Just crazy. Goliath, of course, thinks this is a joke and taunts him more. But David's reply is remarkable in verses 45 through 47. You were coming against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel's armies whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. This day I will give the corpses of the Philistine army to the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the land. Then all the land will realize that Israel has a God, and all this assembly will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will deliver you into our hand. And you know, I already gave the spoiler at the beginning of this. What comes next is remarkable. Young David takes out Goliath with a single stone in his sling before Goliath can even throw the javelin at him. And that's it. The giant is dead. Goliath has fallen. And the Israelite army wins the day due to God miraculously having David defeat Goliath. But I still ask this why question. Why David? Why not Saul? He makes a whole lot more sense. What about the situation and this kid that God provided in such a miraculous way. So let's look back on David's life again before this. He was a shepherd taking care of the sheep, which definitely is not a glamorous job, but it did give him a lot of time. It gave him a lot of time to spend with God. David probably spent most of his free time with the sheep singing psalms and songs to God. And we read many of the psalms he wrote in the book of Psalms later in the Bible. And his musical skills would have been a fruit of all the time he spent worshiping God. He was also in charge of keeping the sheep safe. So some of his time had to also be spent on practicing to defend the sheep. Of course, it wasn't all practice. We hear about some of the little giants that he slayed before, the lion and the bear. Um, and my guess would be that those two obstacles weren't the only ones he'd encountered in his many years as a shepherd either. And honestly, a lion and a bear don't seem all that little to me when it comes to giants facing. But he eventually honed the skill to take down predators before they were close enough to him to harm the sheep or himself. And he used that same skill to take down Goliath from a distance. Lastly, all the things David did here, he did not do for his own glory. He made it clear that it would not be his victory, but it would be the victory of the God of Israel to take down their enemy. For him to be giving the glory to God in this large example, he had made a habit and a practice of giving God the glory in his smaller obstacles. If the worship team would like to come on up, you're welcome. But today, you know, the giants you are facing probably don't remind you much of a lion or a bear or Goliath. 
Maybe they do scrout it, like scream at you in your head saying, you're not good enough. You can't fix this. You can't face this. The giants probably look more like fear and worry, rejection and insecurity, anger and resentment, addiction, bad habits, and even comfort and complacency. Because any of these and others can cause us issues. And for each of us, it might look a little different, but we all have them throughout our lives. These are the things that usually like start small in our lives, and they could probably be easily taken out when they first arrive, but they're left to grow till they're the sizes of giants. And it would take a miracle for them to fall. But here's the thing. Goliath must fall. And how does Goliath fall? Goliath falls through small obediences to God. What David was practicing in his private time alone with God happened in public. What King Saul lacked in private also showed in public. And this isn't a sermon about being better or being more well-prepared, but it is about realizing that God will help you defeat obstacles in life through practice and preparation. So how else does Goliath fall? David gave the glory to God. He spent his time worshiping God for all he has done throughout his life. He also made sure that God was the one to receive the glory at the battle against Goliath. Saul's instinct was to offer reward and glory to anyone who took on Goliath instead of giving the glory to God. And lastly, it is by God's power alone that Goliath fell. Even with all of David's preparation, practice, and faith, David should not have been able to take down Goliath. Goliath was bigger, stronger, way more practiced and prepared in the arts of fighting than David could have ever been at his age. From a human-only perspective, Goliath seems undefeatable. But for God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, no giant is undefeatable. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he defeated the biggest giants of all, sin and death. In Romans 6, 9, we read about how we know that since Christ has been raised from the dead, he is never going to die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Since Jesus defeated all sin and death, it makes it possible for God to slay any giant in our lives. No giant is too big for God today. And I want to encourage you, God did not design us to live frozen in fear, being mocked by our giants forever. So whatever you're facing in your life, whether it's fear, worry, rejection, insecurity, anger, resentment, addiction, bad habits, or complacency and comfort that keeps you from following after God, all of these have to fall before the power of God. Our God is a mighty God. And today we're going to practice the beginning steps of defeating giants by worshiping God and giving God the glory. And this is followed by God working in the lives of those of us who love him. So let's close out by reading a psalm written by David. Just as David spent a lot of time singing to God alone with the sheep, sometimes the best thing is to let scripture speak for itself and let the word of God sink deep into our soul. So use this moment to worship God and gain fuel for the fight of giants in your life. We're going to read through Psalm 145. 
I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most, wor most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He is compassionate on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so all, that all the people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Amen. This is Pastor Nick Poole, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. See you next week, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. 